point in this book regarding the church. The first three chapters have been covering that of doctrine, theology, a foundation of who we are in Christ, a foundation of the church and what the church is to be. And now Paul turns and he writes about how we are to live in light of who we are. We have responsibilities that come with the privilege of being a Christian. And Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be reading from verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The text reads this way. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in, in all. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we pray, Father, that your word might be divided correctly, that you might be honored, that you would speak to us, O God, through your word, that you would open, Father, the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things which we do not yet know. In Jesus' precious name, amen. One of the things that we learn in life, for all of us, is what Jesus taught in Luke twelve forty-eight: For everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. It's in the context of having been given much spiritual privilege and to be ready for the master when he comes. But it parallels the old adage that we learn growing up, that which is, with privilege comes responsibility. With privilege comes responsibility, right? Those of you who are learning to drive, those of you who are students, know that when you drive, you have a privilege. And with that comes responsibility. There's a responsibility. Somebody's got to pay for the auto insurance. Somebody's got to pay for the gas. Somebody's got to pay for the maintenance. And in time, you'll be given more and more of that responsibility as you learn about the privilege of driving. Or if you join a sports team, you know you have responsibilities to show up to practice on time, to treat your coach with respect, to play by the team rules, to be a team player, things like that. Those of you who maybe have seen those who have become famous or wealthy, well, you have a responsibility having that privilege of fame or wealth. You have a responsibility as a role model to those who might look up to you. I know many of you, probably the largest group this year than ever, are going to La Push. Those of you who are going to La Push know that it's a privilege to go and serve the Lord out there. And with that comes the responsibility. You have a responsibility, just like the Uganda team does, to show up to the team meetings, to be a team player. You go there with the right attitude to serve, to give, and to, to, to not waste time, and to participate as a team so that you can reach others for the gospel. 
Being a Christian in the same way as all of the other things that I've mentioned is a privilege because God has called us. God has called us and with that calling comes responsibility. As we've gone over the first three chapters, Paul has told us of the privilege it is. We were chosen by God. We were redeemed by Christ. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit. We were included in the church. We are a priesthood of believers. We're part of the family of God, co-heirs with Christ. And with all of those privileges that we have, we have a responsibility to live in light of that. A person who doesn't live the way that they ought to live by their profession is what we call a hypocrite. A person who isn't consistent in how they will act because of what they say they are. Like a story I read last week about a police officer who pulled over a driver and he asked him for his license and his registration. What's wrong, officer? The driver asked. I didn't go through any red lights and I certainly wasn't speeding. No, you weren't, said the officer. But I saw you waving your fist as you swerved round that lady driving in the left lane. And I further observed your flushed and angry face as you shouted at the driver of the Hummer who cut you off. And how you pounded your steering wheel when the traffic came to a near stop near the bridge. Is that a crime, officer? No. When I saw the... Jesus loves you and so do I bumper sticker on the back of your car. I knew it was stolen. Many of you perhaps even drive somewhat similar with a nice fish on the back of your car. Some of you perhaps don't put a fish because of how you drive. God calls us, you see, to live a certain way because of what we profess we are. We're Christians. We ask ourselves, is the way that I conduct my life Christ-like is the way that I conduct my life consistent with what I've been called to do. And Paul writes about that and he writes about that in the very first verse as he commands us to walk a worthy life. God commands us to walk a worthy life and he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. The word there for worthy means of balancing scales. And that's the idea there. And right, Paul, right at the beginning, he says, you know what? I'm a prisoner of the Lord, not of Rome. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. He knows he's in there for being a Christian. He knows he's in there because he's been preaching about Jesus Christ and that the Gentiles, all those who are not Jews, are included in the church. And what a privilege it is to him. He's not bemoaning his situation. He's not in self-pity. He's not feeling sorry for himself. He did what God has called him to do. And it is God who allowed him to come and be a prisoner who placed him in prison. And one of the things that characterized Paul's life that I'm always amazed at, as well as that of the apostles that I think oftentimes, is their level of self-sacrifice for the kingdom. Like Jesus, they were willing to give and sacrifice of their own well-being, their own safety, of their own lives, of their own convenience, of their own convictions, because they had convictions. And I think to myself oftentimes, because I received this magazine that reminds me, and those of you who go to Mission Fest or others know that there's various organizations out there, Parachurch Ministries, which report on, on those Christians, our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering, who are imprisoned, because the scriptures tell us, don't forget about them. 
And I think about them when I receive the voice of the martyrs or some, some mailing about persecuted Christians because oftentimes we forget living in this bubble that we do that there are believers around the world who are persecuted simply for being baptized or declaring that they're Christians, that they're ostracized, they lose their jobs, that they're cast out of their clans or they're left by their family or they're imprisoned. Or if others find them gathering secretly during on a Sunday to worship the Lord and underground, the threat is that they'll be taken away to a camp. Or that they will, by virtue of the mere fact that they have professed Christ, that they'll be threatened with death, otherwise they don't renounce their faith. And I think often to myself, how much, how much would we be willing to suffer for our faith? To be people of conviction. If being baptized meant that your family would disown you. Or that you would face ostracism or attending worship on a Sunday would mean that you might lose your job or be taken away to a camp never to see your family. Or that you would be beaten or threatened if you would merely say, I'm a Christian. God cares about you and Jesus died for your sins. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And the people very well knew what he meant. They very well knew that he meant, if you want to be my disciple, you want to come after me, you must be willing to deny yourself, to be willing to give of your life, to die for what you believe. Because crucifixions then were plentiful as they lined the roads with people who would be crucified for various reasons. People knew what Jesus meant. And Paul lived a life, a life that was worthy of his calling. And his calling was to preach to the Gentiles and he was imprisoned for it. And he says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. And he calls us to live a life that is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we received. Because people can tell if our life is not consistent with what we profess. People can tell if we don't walk our talk or if we don't live the way that we ought to live. Not that you're perfect, but the characterization of generality of your life would be that of a Christian. Would be that of a person who says, I know God. Unlike a man I read last week as well about a man named uh, Rob Smitty who donated one of his kidneys. It's in the Courier Journal and... 2004 article donated one of his kidneys to a stranger very noble very generous he was browsing the internet and he learned that people needed organs he said his motivation involved doing something that would make his children proud but his 10 year old daughter she wasn't impressed by his sacrifice Amber said her father never comes to see her and never calls Not even on her birthday. I don't think he's much of a hero, she said. Tennessee records show he's not made child support payments to Amber's mother for months. Hypocrisy is easy to see. It's easy to spot. Especially when it's in the lives of others. Hard to see when it's in ourselves. Because we want to do what we want to do. We want to do what we please. We want to have our cake and eat it too. Have one foot in and one foot out. 
So the question is, what does a life that is worthy look like? What does a life that is consistent with God's calling look like? What does that look like? In verse 3, he notes the nature of a worthy life. Five characteristics that are a testimony of a person calling themselves a Christian. Five particular characteristics. There are many more. The five particular that he mentions here, and they're in couplets, I believe. The first two are humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. To be humble means literally to, to think or judge with lowliness. To think or judge with lowliness. See, particularly in the Ephesian church, a humble Jew, quote unquote, wouldn't look at a Gentile and think that they are better than them in some way. You see, Jews didn't think that Gentiles were included in the church. But in that world, in that culture, in that time, John Wesley notes, quote, neither the Romans nor the Greeks had a word for humility, unquote. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, to be humble was a slave-like quality. It was a slave-like quality to be humble. Slaves had nothing but a servitude attitude, you see. When the master asked, they did. No matter what it was, no matter how menial, no matter how demeaning, whatever it was. But to be a Roman, to be a Greek, was to be great-souled. That's how it would be. The competition to be self-sufficient, to be proud, and egotistical. But the characteristic of humility... That was a shame. It was despised. It was a quality of weakness. You were a coward if you were humble. Those centuries, even pagan writers would take the word and borrow the word for humility. And they would use it in a derogatory way to refer to Christians. Humble, a pitiable weakness they would characterize Christians as. But Christ came in a different way. He came in a humble way. And when you think about how Christ humbled Himself, the God of the universe, the One who is all-powerful, who spoke all things into being, who created all things by the very power of His Word, the One who upholds the universe, the One who is all-powerful and eternally existing and knows everything, decided that He was going to humble Himself and confine himself to the limitations of a person. The limitations of a body. A body that would be subjected to the elements. A person who would bear the sins of the entire world on the cross. Sins that they, that he did not commit. That others would. To humble oneself and to stoop so that we could be saved. Our world exalts pride, exalts self-sufficiency, exalts independence. We want to continue to foster a self-esteem, a self-image, to have pride in ourselves. Do you know who has the highest self-esteem level? I remember watching on 2020. Those who are incarcerated. Those who are in prison. Some of the highest levels of self-esteem. And when you pop the bubble of ego, it becomes... They become very angry. It was Satan's pride that caused him to fall from heaven. It was Satan's pride. It was pride that caused Adam and Eve to be cast out of the Garden of Eden when they chose to do what they wanted to do. Humility, on the other hand, is a virtue commended. It's a virtue commended by God. Luke 18 says, For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. 
Gentleness is the second one that is coupled with humility and it means to be mild-mannered, to be self-controlled. It's the opposite of vindictiveness or vengeance. The person who is gentle isn't a fighter, isn't pugilistic, isn't a person who's going to be pugnacious. It doesn't mean that they're weak or timid or it doesn't mean that they're a coward. But it means power that is under control. That is what gentleness means. And it's used of this. It's used of wild animals. The word is used of wild animals that were tamed like a horse. Like a majestic, powerful horse that has been broken and tamed. That horse can still run as fast and be as strong as they were prior to their taming, prior to being broken, but... They will now do everything that is required of them under their master's command. That is what gentleness is. It is power that is under control. It is power that is under control. Moses was a humble and gentle man. He confronted Pharaoh. He was called the most humble person on the face of the earth at that time. Third and fourth qualities beyond humility and gentleness are patience and showing tolerance and love. Patience and showing tolerance and love. Patience means to be long-tempered, to be long-suffering. It's a person who can endure negative circumstances with godly character. And they're faithful no matter what the task is. You want to know how patient a person is? You look at the life of Noah. You look at the life of Noah and you think to yourself, Noah, he must have been a patient man. He must have been a godly man. Because think of what he went through. It's amazing when you think of Noah. You ask, what was Noah called to do? Noah was called to build an ark. He was called to build an ark. And what was amazing in his obedience to God was that he built this ark. And it was far away from any large body of water. It was far, imagine saying, well, God wants you to build this ship that'll sail on the oceans and there you are in Colorado building it. And here it is, three football fields, large and all, and here are three decks, etc. And he's building this ark far away from water. And God says it's going to rain. And he didn't really know what rain was because rain hadn't even fallen on the earth by then. Not only had rain not even fallen on the earth by then, he was a very patient man. It took him about 120 years to build this ark. And all that time he was called a preacher of righteousness who would preach to the people and tell them that what? The end is coming. The end is coming. Repent. Abraham was also a patient man. At the age of 75, he was promised a child. He was promised a child and granted, yes, he tried to have a child through a surrogate mother. But he waited still and had faith in God. Twenty-five years later, he bore Isaac at the age of 100. Patience, waiting for God, waiting upon God's promises, believing God. Because even when Abraham was called, he was called that he would own a land, that he would have a land for his descendants. All of his life he walked and he walked and he believed and he trusted in God, even though that land wouldn't physically come to him quite yet. Secondly, it is showing tolerance and love. Once again, agape love or unconditional, self-sacrificial love. 
We look at the characteristics of love. If you turn in your Bibles to the passage in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, a few books back, at the chapter 13, we are to have tolerance and love when we love others. Often read at weddings, describing love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. The text there reads, Love is patient. This is what love is. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, when we love one another, it means we're patient with the shortcomings of other people. It means that we're kind to those who are unkind to us. It means we're not jealously comparing ourselves to others and fostering discontentment in our lives. We're not bragging, we're not arrogant or rude or selfish if we're loving. We're not going to be arguing all the time about petty things. It's not easily provoked, it's not easily angered. Love doesn't hold grudges. Love doesn't stew over past offenses. Love isn't glad over sin. Love is happy for godliness. Love tolerates other people. Love gives the benefit of the doubt and it hopes for the best. And it puts up with many of the difficulties that others might bring into our lives. In other words, love, in short, looks for the best, the godliness, and the most God-pleasing thing for someone else for their good and for God's glory. People don't fall into or fall out of agape love because love is unconditional that Peter ta- that Paul talks about here. It is the love that is a love of choice. Not that it's devoid of feelings, but it is based upon a willful decision that I will love someone else. It loves and endures all things, all circumstances, unconditionally, That is how it is. God, you see, didn't love us because we were so lovable. God didn't love us because we treated God right, because we behaved in the right way, because we looked the right way. No, God loved us even while we were yet sinners in rebellion, raising ourselves against Him. As Ephesians tells us, we were children of wrath, people who were constantly offensive to God. Even now, we sin against God day in and day out, and yet God is patient, and God is forgiving, God is forbearing, God tolerates us, and we come and ask for forgiveness, and God forgives us, and so should we, in forbearing love. So, we're to be humble, and gentle, patient, forbearing love, and fifthly, we're to strive for unity. We're to strive for unity, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. To be diligent means to make haste, to be eager to. Ah, very common problem in the New Testament times. The Corinthians, they were often problems there, factions which would say, I'm of a Paul, I'm of a Paul, I'm of Christ. Common in the Ephesian church, I'm a Jew, you're a Gentile common in the book of Acts in the New Testament church. I'm a Hellenistic Jew. I'm a native Hebrew. They're not giving me my food for my portion. Common. 
problem in churches where divisions, separations. Divisions are not uncommon and they often become problems when people begin to gossip or their cliques or their little groups or their personal agendas or their soapboxes or there's old grievances that haven't been ironed over, that haven't been forgiven or forgotten. Sometimes they're for doctrinal reasons. Sometimes divisions come because of philosophical reasons. Sometimes they're over the smallest of things. Sometimes they're over things I remember learning in seminary. More churches split over the subject of music than they do over doctrine. Sometimes it is of petty things though. There's an old professor that I had. He's in his 90s I believe now. His name is J. Dwight Pentecost. Professor at Dallas Seminary tells about a church split that occurred. It was so serious that the the one part of the church filed suit against the other part of the church and the other part of the church filed suit against the other that the loser would have to vacate the church. Of course, it was a violation of the command in 1 Corinthians not to sue your fellow Christian brother or sister. The courts threw it out and it got went in front of the court judiciary of the church, which is where it should have been in the first place, that a church should decide among its own members what is right and what is wrong. The church made a decision that one group was right and the other was wrong and the other had to vacate the church. But it's fascinating because the question comes in, how did it all begin? It all began when an elder in the church, an elder, mind you, received a smaller slice of ham than the little boy next to him. Rather than overlooking offenses, we tend to go on the offensive. One study I read about speaks of interpersonal conflicts, rather revealing results, discovered that the quote-unquote best arguers are those that don't point fingers. According to the study, the person who says we the most during an argument suggests the best solutions. Researchers from the University of Pennsylvania, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, used statistical analysis to study 59 couples. Spouses who use second personal pronouns, you, tended towards negativity in interactions. Those making use of first person plural pronouns, we, provided positive solutions problems. And the study concluded, we, users, may have a sense of shared interest that sparks compromise and other ideas pleasing to both partners. You-sayers, on the contrary, tend to criticize, disagree, justify, and otherwise team with negativity. I learned that from an old manager that I had when I worked in California. Whenever there are problems that occurred and problems would inevitably occur in our team, he would always avoid trying to find out necessarily what particular individual was at fault. Rather, he focused on the problem, not the person, and tried to address things that way, and he was very well liked. Because he would always try and find a win-win situation without trying to assess blame, and oftentimes comes the case, being a we-sayer rather than a you-sayer. But because we're all sinners, you see, conflict will inevitably come in all relationships between friends, between co-workers, between fellow students, between family members, etc. And God's instruction for us as a church is that we are to be unified. 
We are to be unified as a church. Unity doesn't come by saying, okay, everyone, you can, you can have your own little groups as long as you just split into your own corners. You don't bother me. I don't bother you. Unity doesn't come when people do political power plays and try and garner things behind the scenes. Unity doesn't come even by not saying anything. I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to keep quiet all the time. Unity doesn't even come by compromising the truth. Unity comes, though, by first asking ourselves, as the scriptures outline here, am I a humble person in this situation? Am I gentle? Am I communicating in a gentle way? Am I a person who loves and is long-suffering, willing to overlook what another has done? Am I patient and tolerant of the many small things that just rub me the wrong way? Disunity, see, begins by looking at the faults of others, while unity begins by looking at ourselves. You see, all conflict and disunity, as I mentioned last week, is because of sin. It's not because of personality or or makeup. After all, if we were all perfect and sinless, said the right things, acted the right way, behaved the right way, had godly desires all the time, you know what? Everyone would get along all of the time. Just as there was harmony in the Garden of Eden before sin was there, so too there would be harmony if we all were perfect But sin has brought in a dynamic that causes conflict, brought in our own selfishness, our own pride, our own desires, that we want our way. And yet, that is why Paul commands us, and God commands us, shall I say, to strive for unity. Why? Because the foundation is, what, in the body, verse 4, in the spirit, The Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The foundation is that of God, the Trinity Himself. The foundation is that the church is unified, that everyone came to become a child of God through the same means. Being baptized in the Spirit, coming through Jesus Christ, believing in the same God. And we are to be one church That unity is reflected based upon the Godhead Himself. Any deviation, of course, from these truths when people deviate and say, well, no, that's not the same salvation we have and there is false teaching or there is sin. Of course, there's not to be unity in that as these things tell us that it is based upon the church, it is based upon God and the character of Christ. Passage is not teaching that we should be unified under false teaching for aberration or sin. After all, in Revelation chapter 2, in 1 Corinthians, there's plenty of instruction how to deal with situations where people may profess to be believers or profess or propagate teaching that is not true. There's not to be unity there. We're to strive for unity, strive to make peace, strive to resolve conflict because it is to be characteristic of those who have a worthy walk. Characteristic of the church, characteristic of the body of Christ. And it's based upon the nature of Christ, based upon whom God has called us to be. One church. We were brought into the church through one means. And we have a responsibility to live in a way that is consistent with how we were called. I think of an old movie called The The Prince's Diaries. It's a Disney movie. 
It's about the San Francisco girl that, that was made fun of. She really didn't fit in. And she went to a private school where they wore these uh, uniforms and she was somewhat awkward. And having been left out by other kids who were more popular, etc., she was raised by her mother. She learns that her father in this movie passes away. And now... She learns from her grandmother that she's the sole heir, sole heir to a fictitious kingdom called the Kingdom of Genovia, somewhere near France. And so the movie chronicles part of it when she is going through and learning about this, how they have to train her to be a person who acts like royalty, who talks like royalty, who dresses or or behaves in a way that is appropriate for a princess. One who is to wave right and eat right and conduct herself and she's bobbling back and forth and she has all of these faux pas and mistakes that she makes along the way but she continues to try and in the end she decides that she does want to take on this responsibility of being the princess of Genovia. And the same might be said true of us that we are Christians and we are people who aren't going to be perfect at all. But we're called by God to live in a way as a child of God, as princes and princesses of God's kingdom. Because we were merely orphans, people who lived in our own sin, people disassociated who were far away from God. And we're called to live a life and to walk a worthy life of the calling that we've received. Because the responsibility that we've been given, the privilege of that responsibility is to live a life as a child of God. To live a life that is consistent with the character of being humble, of gentleness, of being patient, of loving, being people who want to strive for unity in the church. Because then it will be a powerful testimony to others who do not know Christ and it will glorify our God because it is reflective of Him, the Godhead, Himself. Let's pray. Father, it is oftentimes our own sin and selfishness that brings disunity to the church. Our own pride, our lack of patience, our lack of love, our lack of desire to pursue unity. That breaks apart, Lord, churches. That breaks apart friends. That breaks apart families. That breaks apart relationships, O God. And we pray, Father, that we might strive for unity. We might strive to have a character that is worthy of the calling which you have called us to. And Father, when we do, we pray, God, that we might bring you honor. We ask, O God, grant to us strength of heart and a character that is consistent with being a child of God. In Jesus' precious name, amen.